0: Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guest today is
1: Robtel Nerja Peli from Liberia who in 2013 wrote an anti-corruption children's book called Bagba. Can you please tell us a bit more about this project of yours?
2: Sure. So the book was actually written in 2012, uh, subsequently published in 2013 by One More Book, which is a small niche publisher that publishes children's books for countries with low literacy rates. And the idea is to revolutionize the children's book industry by introducing um, books that are published by by authors and illustrators um, of countries that are not clearly represented in the mainstream children's book industry. So the book is titled Bagba. And it means trickery, loosely, um, in my mother's native language, Liber- uh, Basa, Liberia. Basa, Liberia. Um, and the book, without giving too much away, is um, it follows a few days in the lives of Liberian twins, Sandema and Sandega, who leave their port city of Buchanan, where they live with their mom and their dad, to visit their aunt and uncle in Monrovia. And throughout this journey, they have a series of experiences that remind them of this word, Bagba, which uh, means corruption, effectively. Um, and so that's pretty much what the book is about. And the reason I wrote the book was because I really wanted to start having a national conversation with children in Liberia as well as children outside of Liberia. It's a pan-African kind of initiative, but it also transcends the continent of Africa because corruption is everywhere, Um, about what it means to be accountable, not only to oneself, but also one's community, one's nation, and one's world. Um, And I realized that in sort of informal conversations I've had with adults as well as children, the assumption is that corruption is a public sector affair or a private sector affair, but we fail to realize that there are everyday forms of corruption that we engage in, but we always point the finger at the government or we always point the finger at the private sector.
1: Yeah, so how has that been received really among young children? Because let's face it, corruption is an adult thing. I mean, why do you want to get young children involved in discussing it so early in their lives?
2: Because I think the practice of corruption starts much earlier. And uh, I'll give you an example. So I worked for the Liberian government for four years and I was responsible for reforming our bilateral scholarships process. And throughout that reform... Sort of engagements with young people who were applying for bilateral scholarships. We discovered that four young men had forged their national exam records in order to be eligible for the scholarships because we had very stringent um, eligibility requirements. So these are 18 year year old men, young men on the verge of adulthood who had already learned and were schooled in the ways of corruption, were schooled in the ways of bribery, were schooled in the ways of fraud. And I realized that we needed to start much earlier. So between 8 and 10-year-olds, that's when they start really formulating a moral compass and a moral code. And so I targeted that age group because I figured if we started talking about what it means to be honest, why is it important to have integrity, that we would um, grow a new generation of integrity fighters um, who who understand corruption and how it affects us negatively across the continent.
1: Actually, I think that's a very good point you've made. It's it's not that people when they enter government or public service, want to be involved in corruption. But society itself puts them under huge pressure. Families, friends, wives, girlfriends. Absolutely. So that's
2: why I said it's it's the everyday forms of corruption that I'm interested in. So um, if you take someone who exists in an ecosystem that enables corruption or enables um, dishonesty, and you put that person in a government uh, role, um, I'm not sort of condoning their behavior, but what do you expect the person to do? Um, especially when that societal pressure is there. So I'll give you a classic example. I was telling some people last night that um, when I worked for President's Relief, she would always have, President Relief of Liberia, she would always have an um, open house on New Year's Day. And she would invite people from public sector, private sector, so forth and so on. And so I remember going once with my mom and my sister who were visiting Liberia on Christmas um, during the Christmas holiday, and sitting around her pool. She has a very modest home in Liberia and the people who had been invited were complaining that her pool was so small. Now, why is it a whole president of an entire nation has such a small pool and such a small house? So it's almost like we expect our leaders to steal and to live these sort of grandiose lives, and when they don't, they're damned if they, they do, they're damned if they don't, right? If they don't live these grandiose lives, then we complain. If they do steal and they live the grandiose lives, we complain. So I think it really goes back to society. What is it that we want for our future and our children's future? Um, and are we willing to um, live ethical lives in order to make that future come true?
1: Yes, I know. It's, it's, it's a major problem, I mean, mostly so in West Africa. In a country like Sierra Leone, people laugh at you if you're not involved in corruption. Who do you think you are? You know, is it the same yeah. in, in If Liberia? you're upright and yes. you're
2: morally upright, you work for government particularly and you don't steal, mm. and you leave, they say, but why did you waste your time? All those years you spent in government, why didn't you steal? So, you know, it's it's a societal problem. It's not just the public sector or the private sector kind okay. of.
1: But, but coming back to Monrovia and to Liberia, because mm-hmm. I've been speaking to a lot of civil servants over there who say that they're paid only once every three months. And that really is... Uh, uh, Recipe for grand corruption.
2: Well, I think President Salif has done, um, she's done a lot of good in that respect, even though there are lots and lots of problems with her administration and how she's run Liberia for the past 12 years. But civil servants' um, salaries are regular. Like During Charles Taylor's regime, it was a different story altogether. And so she regularized that to make sure that civil servants are paid regularly. The problem is, Um, the salary levels are quite low. So you have police officers who are paid $150. And then you compare that to political appointees, some of whom are paid $15,000 a month, particularly those who work in... um, the SOEs, the the um, semi-autonomous agencies. And so there's a complete discrepancy or disconnect between your police officer or your, your, your doctor or your teacher who's being paid a pittance for public service and you give lots and lots and lots of money to those political appointees who might be your cronies or your um, insiders. Um, so I think that has to change. There has to be a living wage, right? If we expect people to serve um, honestly, um then we have to make sure that we pay them relatively okay, that they can survive on that salary and not have to be...
1: Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a big fight because people who are even paid well still, that's true. still dip their, their fingers in, in the till. Absolutely, you know, so I mean, it's just, absolutely. Is it a force of habit, cultural?
2: I think, like I said, I think we Liberian, I'll speak to Liberia because that's what I've experienced. It's an ecosystem that enables Dishonesty that enables theft, that enables dispossession, that enables inequality. And so if you, you exist in that ecosystem and you don't know anything else outside of that ecosystem, you think that it's normal. So corruption has been normalized. It's enabled so well that um, everybody thinks that it's all right. And if you don't succumb to that, people think that you're the one who's crazy. Um, So I think we just again if if you go back with if you go back to that initial um, crusade that I had when I was writing the narrative about speaking to children if you start having that conversation early on then I think they will begin to question they'll begin to question in such a way that they'll embarrass the adults into doing the right thing so I'll give you a classic example Bagba has been um, adapted into a stage play. And we've got 25 young people between the ages of 8 and 12 that we've worked with in for, the pa- for the past five months with the premier theater company called um, Flomo Theater. So in, they've adapted in, 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 Liberia. in Liberia. So we debuted it mm. on September 28, 2017 at the Monrovia City Hall in Monrovia. And the children who are part of this cast, who've been working on this script for, for the past five months, have become corruption fighters. So one of the parents said to me that now her child is the integrity police in the house. So much so that when she sees her mom being dishonest, she says, Mom, that's Bagba. Yes. So I think, you've, you know, you've got, you've got that conversation starting in the homes. And I hope that it'll, you know, revolutionize so that it becomes a national thing where children, again, begin to embarrass the adults into doing the right thing.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you've done a lot of work on corruption and you work for the African Development Bank for the last year. But corruption, basically, is a universal human trait. It is. It's even bigger in other parts of the world, yeah, but societies not crumble like they crumbled in Africa. Why does that happen?
2: I think part of it is uh, consequences systems. Um, so we've got very weak judicial systems in the continent of Africa. Um, there are lots of pending corruption cases in Liberia right now, where people have been indicted. I mean, the major one right now that involves the chairman of the ruling party, um, and that has just just fallen by the wayside it's prolonged um there have been technical glitches with the case and we because we don't have a strong judicial system that can withstand bribery where the rich Mm -hmm. can pay their way out of these kinds of quagmires that's why we have the, the the problem we have there are no consequences so people don't go to jail And so um, those who are looking outside of the system thinking, oh, if that person steals a million dollars from the national coffers and they don't get caught, then what's about me? I can go ahead and go to the market and steal or I can take bribes from students as a teacher in the school or I can, as a pastor in a church, you know, take the offering and use it to build a a big mansion on the beach. Again, there are no consequences. And when people don't see consequences or systems aren't strong enough to um, to regulate these kinds of horrible behaviors, um, then people will think it's all right. Again, it becomes normalized.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's most destructive for weak economies like African economies. You know, I mean, like I said, in other parts of the world, people steal huge amounts, but the society does not
2: well, they get prosecuted.
1: Yeah, and they get prosecuted. They get prosecuted. And, 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 the and
2: that's not to say that corruption doesn't happen in the West. Look what well, happened with the, the Paradise Papers yes. where people are, you know, investing in offshore accounts, millions and millions and billions of dollars. Yes. I mean, the, F, the Economic Commission on Africa has done really, really fascinating and really important work on illicit financial flows. So, you know, big multinational corporations that don't pay their taxes or they have tax havens that they hide all of their money in. This is These are not Africans. These are Europeans. These are Americans who are very much part and parcel of the corruption um, that we see on
1: the continent today. Yeah, so that's a very good point you've made. So African countries then have to be on their toes when they deal with companies coming in. Because let's face it, I mean, they're there to make money. They do it in the West. Big companies have been ripping off governments. But there in those countries... They have the capacity I agree. to challenge them and 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 discover. I agree, and the, not take the, brown envelopes because yes. our our yeah.
2: parliaments and our legislature, yes. in order to pass these concession deals, will take the brown envelopes. Yes. And what's interesting to me is that the brown envelopes, in terms of the larger, you know, the the, the greater good of the larger scheme. The brown envelopes, what's in, in the brown envelopes is, is actually a pittance compared to what the multinationals make. Of course. So, again, you know, the public service should be for public service. It shouldn't be to go and amass wealth and become rich, like a get rich kind of scheme. But that's what public service has become in a lot of our countries, um, unfortunately.
0: You are listening to Talking Africa on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned.
1: Uh, welcome back. Uh, my guest today is Robtail Nijepili from Liberia, who recently wrote an anti corruption uh, children's book called Bagba. So, what's, what's the next move now? Because I, I see you. It's been used in Ghana, I think.
2: Yeah, okay. So lots and lots and lots of stuff happening. So besides the adaptation into the stage play, um, I've also adapted the book into a song and a video and um, was able to get a grant, two back-to-back grants from subsequent grants from um, the Open Society Initiative for West Africa. So in the first grant cycle, we adapted the, the book into a song and a video and that was produced and written by um, a premier hip hop artist called Takun J that's been doing really really well the song is called Bagba Corruption we've also um, convinced the Ministry of Education in Liberia to place the book on a supplemental reader list for third to fifth graders in Liberia Similarly, the Ghana Education Service has also placed the book on the supplemental reader list for primary three. And the idea is to get this book in the curriculum of schools across the continent of Africa. Again, it's a Pan-African kind of crusade that I have. Um, in terms of the second grant cycle, again, we've made the the book into a play. We also have um, in the pipeline adapting the book into a five minute radio drama that will be played on radio stations across the con- uh, across Liberia because we know that's how most people get their information is through radio not necessarily through television or even the written word um, and then we're going to pilot the book in 10 schools in um, a subpolitical of division a sub-political division of Liberia called Bassa County, which mm-hmm. is where the book is is set it's in the set, very beginning. Yes, yes, um, in the first cycle of the grants, we piloted the book in Montserrat, which is where the Mon- Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, is. So the idea is to pilot the book in all the sub- sub-political v- divisions of Liberia, all 15 of them, and then take the book to Nigeria, take the book to Sierra Leone, take the book to Gambia, take the book to South Africa, to you know North Africa, Egypt, Tunisia. Um, and have it translated in different languages, both European as well as African. Um, I mean, i'm I'm in this for the long haul.
1: So you're confident that uh, you will achieve something?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, the conversation has already started in Liberia. Um, Someone asked me, what's the reach beyond children? I mean, public servants are using the word Bagba because they're referencing the Mm -hmm. book. Radio personalities are using the word Bagba in reference to the book. Um, Everyday sort of conversations that people are having, they're using the word Bagba because of the book. So I think it's become a part of the lexicon in Liberia now and I hope that it'll become a a part of the lexicon in other countries across the continent as well.
1: Well, yes, you worked for four years for President Johnson Sirleaf in Liberia. Now there's going to be a change. Mm. Do you think that uh, uh, whoever comes into power will buy into your uh, Bagba project?
2: They don't have a choice. (laughs) (laughs) The revolution (laughs) will not be be stopped. I mean, Mm. I think... Um, if anything, they would be smart and, and astute enough to take this on and say, this is a crusade that we want to endorse and we want to support. Um, like I said, the Ministry of Education right now is a huge, huge supporter of the book. Um, we even developed a teacher's guide for the book with the Ministry of Education curriculum team for primary schools. So um, whoever becomes president uh, doesn't have a choice. They have to take this on as, as an important crusade because you Know corruption is not something that's going to skip over a generation, it's exactly. something that we have to deal with right now for generations to come.
1: So, why do we have this electoral stalemate in Liberia? Can you please explain? Story?
2: <laughs> sure, so you know, October tw- uh, 10, 2017 elections, um, we thought one went, went off without a glitch, um, and we realized that. Uh, allegedly there were some voter procedural errors as well as electoral major gross irregularities that have been alleged by one of the political parties that came in third place, the Liberty Party, fronted by Charles Brumskin. Um But not only that, I think other parties, smaller parties, as well as the ruling Unity Party that's being fronted by the current Vice President Joseph Boykai now have accused the National Elections Commission of gross violations of the electoral laws. And so because Liberia's, um, you know, I guess electoral system is, is, is interesting and different than like a Kenya's, um, the NEC was adjudicating its own case, right? So even though the case was against the NEC, the claims were against the NEC, the NEC had to investigate and make some sort of ruling. And of course they ruled in their own favor. So they said uh, these uh, claims of irregularities are rubbish, um, they're not legitimate and therefore we throw the case out. Um, Charles Brumskin's Liberty Party in the coalition took the case to the highest uh, element of the National Elections Commission, which is the Board of Commissioners. They also ruled in their own favor and said that the claims of irregularities were illegitimate. Um, and I'll tell you about some of what the claims say. So some of the irregularities that these parties um, are alleging is that the national voter registration rule was never um, published in the public domain. And then the past two elections, the past two post-war elections, 2005 and 2011, they were always published. So people knew that their names were on the voter registration roll. This time around, it wasn't published. They were given to all the political parties. But there's a discrepancy between what was given to the political party and what the NEC eventually used. So when a lot of people went to the the polling booths, their names were not on the voter registration roll. So many of them were turned away and dis- disenfranchised. So Liberty Party is using that to say they is a problem the other issue that they highlighted is that um, if you type in some voter ID numbers two or three names show up for the same voter ID number so it, clearly there's there's some sort of discrepancy there um, now whether or not the claims against the NEC are enough to warrant a rerun of the October 10 election is something that the Supreme Court is going to have to decide because the Liberty Party has appealed the NEC's decision to um, revoke their case and the Supreme Court, makes their decision on December 7th. So it'll be interesting. I mean, I just did a, a lecture at Trathmore Law School talking about what are the comparisons. In, in, in Nairobi, Yeah, here in Nairobi. What are the comparisons between um, the electoral litigation process in Kenya this year and the electoral litigation process in Liberia? And I think to a certain extent, the Supreme Court of Liberia has taken note of what the Supreme Court in Kenya has done. Whether or not their rule in the opposition's favor is a different story altogether, but I think Kenya definitely set the precedent for Supreme <coughs> Courts to exercise a certain level of judicial independence.
1: Yeah, well, this is quite interesting. How can uh, the vice president, who act, who has all the uh, apparatus of state, complain that, that he's, I mean, his opposition party well, uh, rigging against rumor,
2: him? Rumor has it <laughs> exactly. that um, President Salif is not in complete, full support of his candidacy. And was, rumor has it, well, there's it's not, hearsay. It's not rumor,
1: Brumskin she prefers.
2: There is hearsay, no, not Brumskin. Not Brumskin. George Weir. There is hearsay, yes, that I she see. is in favor of George Weir. And the reason this hearsay exists is um, that she has not, I mean, she's rhetorically said that she supports the VP, but there have been some incidences in which there's a big question mark about whether or not that's actually true, like the, whether or not the practice matches the rhetoric. Um, the other thing is that um, George Weir is also the senator of Montserrat County. That's uh, a post that President Salif's son, Robert Salif, um, has allegedly is allegedly interested in. Mm-hmm. So if George Weah becomes president, then there's a vacuum there, there's a power vacuum and Rob Salif can then effectively run for the senatorial post. Whether he'll win or not is a different story altogether. So there are all these rumors that President Salif is creating and she's creating the, the enabling environment for her son to become effectively the prime minister of Liberia.
1: Well, that's um, a big, that's a big let, It's a huge let, accusation. Let down to, to hear about.
2: Well, it's an accusation. I'm not saying that it's true. It's an accusation. It's hearsay. It's These are purported well, in claims Africa, this May, eventually turn out to be true. Um, I'm not saying whether it's true or not. I'm just saying what's the hearsay um, and why? Because you asked the question. Well, why would the VP now contest yes. the election results? Yes. Because well, I mean, he, he should have all the apparatus of state. his to because read his the party elections. is saying that he does not have the full support of the president, financial, moral, so forth and so on. That her attentions and her interests lie, lie elsewhere.
1: Yes, but I mean, in terms of peace and security, how is the situation like? Because the UN withdrawn their troops saying that everything's fine but i mean so the
2: un is there's there's a a marginal force in liberia at the the moment i think about 1600 troops and then maybe four or five hundred police officers they were waiting for these elections to be over before they like fully fully withdraw um peace and security you know what i actually have to say there's been Liberians have done relatively well because there was all this alarm and concern that because of the electoral stalemate, there would be violence. And Liberia has been really, really, really peaceful. Um, If you compare the 2017 elections and even this electoral um, challenge to what happened in 2011, there were lots of cases of people um, dying during the 2011 elections because the opposition party, George Weah's party, um, boycotted the elections. Now, People are just waiting for the rule of law to take its, you know, to take its logical conclusion for the case to be um, for a final ruling by the Supreme Court. And then we'll continue. Um, If it means a rerun, a rerun. If it means a runoff, continue on the process of getting to the runoff. Um, so I think Liberians psychologically have committed themselves to peace and they've decided that they're not interested in bullets flying, that they're not interested in instability, that they want to send their children to school. They want to have um, you know adequate healthcare systems. And the only way to do that is to ensure that um, we don't revert back to 1999.
1: Finally, Africans are beginning to realize that they're the ones who die while the leaders who cause all the problems, send Absolutely. their wives and children to Europe. It's very, very good, don't Absolutely. you think? Absolutely. No, yeah, no yeah,
2: Liberians, I, Liberians yeah. have, I think Liberians have It's happening in other parts decided, of Africa too. Yeah. No, so Liberians if you have, have decided want that- to fight, you go and fight. Eventually it doesn't serve yeah. anyone's it, it, it interest. It doesn't serve them. Yeah. Yes, and beyond that, I think in the past 12 years, Liberians have invested in real estate. You know, so a destabilizing environment means that they lose those investments. They've also invested in ensuring that um, their children's education is relatively all right. So, I mean, there's a lot of it's political, it's economic, it's social investments that Liberians have made in the past 12 years. And no amount of political maneuvering or politicking is going to stop them or deter them from that. Um, And I'm actually quite proud of my people for staying the course. Um, And it's not just about the UN's presence. It's about Liberians making a full commitment to peace.
1: Well, exactly. Because, I mean, there have been reports about uh, outside interference in the election in the sense that they want to uh, stop Charles Taylor's people gaining power again, and that should not be the case. I mean, if Liberians want to vote for yeah. whoever they want to vote yeah. for, they should allow them to... And to, Liberians they, yes.
2: have voted for whoever they want to yes, vote exactly, for. Yes, yeah, exactly. They I'm have the, done that, and they will do it in the runoff when it eventually takes place. Yes, because
1: yeah. that, that's very, very important in Africa, this day, that uh, Africans take control of their own uh, destiny. Absolutely. So I mean, but you 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 you'll find that everything will be okay. I think everything will be okay. I think
2: all of the alarmist statements that have been made by, particularly by international actors, that there's going to be a constitutional crisis, blah blah blah. I think that it is um, unwarranted. I think, um, you know, I think the runoff will take place, and and what will probably happen is that they have to clean up whatever irregularities uh, will take place. But the Supreme Court is going to make their decision very soon.
1: Yes, because we don't want instability in that region. No, because no, Because no. there will be elections in Sierra Leone. I agree. And so year, Sierra and Leone is g-
2: probably watching Liberia. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Be, be, because I, I believe that there was a UN team in, in Freetown uh, recently to mm-hmm. make sure that everything goes well. So I hope that uh, well, Libyans will do the right thing and uh, deliver.
2: I'm 100% sure that we will.
1: Uh, Rob tell Nijepeli Thank you very much for this interview.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Talking Africa and ALC Pan-African Radio. For these and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. For feedback on these and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.